0: Instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A wreath swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear.
1: Thank you, Mark. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you guys online. I hope you said good morning back to me online. I trust you did. As John has said before, we are starting our new sermon series. I guess in one sense, I should say recommencing our very, very long sermon series of going through Matthew's Gospel over, I think, oh, five years or something like that in term one, something like that. The boss will correct me later. Uh, Let me lead us in prayer as we uh, get back into this part of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the God who speaks and you speak in your Word and through the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us uh, to strengthen us, to mould us into the likeness of Jesus and for our great comfort and our correction. We pray, Father, that you work powerfully in us as we consider this part of your Word this morning. Help us to lay aside distractions or hindrances, be it the stuffy masks or the heat or whatever, uh, and concentrate on your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, you don't have to uh, be a Christian for very long to work out that uh, Jesus never made a secret that being one of his followers comes with tremendous cost. Anyone who puts their hand to the plough and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God, he would say in Luke 9. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, Matthew 10. And of course, the one that I suspect all of us uh, will know, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me, Mark eight thirty four. When the stakes are this high, I can totally understand this phenomenon that I call spiritual tiredness, where the long-term, day-in, day-out obedience to Jesus wears you down and makes you wonder if it's all in vain. The person who took the lesser-paying job in order to be closer to their church community and do more uh, for the sake of God's kingdom, who then sees the person who took the higher-paying job with a nicer house and the car, and day by day they kind of just get that bit disgruntled. Is it worth it? Is is it all in vain or not? The person who's stuck in a difficult, trying marriage, and who, for the sake of obedience to, to Jesus, knows that it's important to do all they can to make it better and to maintain... But when it's a really hard and difficult day, they might just get to the point where they think to themselves something like, is it really worth it? It's all in vain, maybe. I've heard of Christians who have uh, been same-sex attracted and chosen not to, to act on that and, and therefore be celibate and unmarried. And I can imagine that they'd every now and then think, is this whole Jesus thing true or not? Because if it's not, I've kind of you know, wasted my life to a fair, fair extent. The person has to deal with the entitled clients making unreasonable demands or the arrogant workmates in sense that you won't take a sinful course of action and it wears you down to the point where you think, I'm just gonna tell them what they should hear and give them what they deserve, but I won't because following Jesus means I've gotta be gracious and you just get worn down day in, day out. Maybe it'll just be easier to snap. The Christian who feels like they're generally just hopeless, Suck at prayer life, suck at Bible reading. You just feel like you'd be less depressed if you just walked away from Jesus. It seems like a high high cost. Sometime around 1918, a wonderful Christian lady named Helen Lamell was reflecting on the way that this fallen world can often dull and uh, perhaps cause people to doubt even their faith. And she wrote a wonderful little song called "The Heavenly Vision," which none of you know. But if I say the words you'll recognize some of you will recognize a song from another name. She wrote, "O oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see." Put up your hand if you know it already. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus." Look full in his wonderful face. Did you put up your hand if it's familiar down? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Our passage today, written for God's church, calls on even the seasoned believer to refocus on what's central to the identity of Jesus for the benefit of one who could well be said to be spiritually Tired. that's why I'm excited to bring it to us this morning. Now, the context for our passage is that Jesus is reconstituting God's people Israel. Uh, God's people Israel, through a, a sordid history of idolatry and rejection of God, had largely failed uh, to uh, maintain the blessing God gave them and to bring it to the rest of the world. So Jesus, at the start of uh, chapter 10, which if you've got an amazing memory, you looked, you'll remember we looked at this time last year... As uh, said, we're going to do a little mission to Israel. Uh, We're going to tell them the kingdom's come, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. And by the way, I'm going to reconstitute this people. That's why I'm choosing and naming 12 apostles. You get that just before this. And then he sends those apostles out uh, to their own towns to proclaim that God's kingdom is near. Now, like any true leader... Jesus, of course, leads by example. He's going to do the mission as well. Look at verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing, instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee, or literally in their towns as well. He's doing the same thing. And during this mission to Israel, Jesus and his apostles were proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven has come near, chapter 10, verse 7, and they were also performing signs that illustrated the kind of kingdom that God was inaugurating. They would heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, chapter 10, verse 8. All the things pertaining to human sinfulness will somehow be done away with when this coming kingdom arrives. But if you have an amazing memory, or you've read recently chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, when John the Baptist had been carrying out his ministry earlier on, he had already been getting people to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And he would do that in the expectation that the Christ would come and carry out the final judgment against God's enemies. You remember the fiery words of John the Baptist, right? I baptise you with water, but after comes well, he's going to baptise you with fire. I'm preaching a baptism of repentance, but this guy, when he comes, the axe is already at the root of the tree. He's going to chop it down and, and burn the chaff in unquenchable fire, right? that That's John the Baptist all the way back in Matthew 3. And John's expectation was right. The Old Testament speaks of God's coming King, God's Messiah as the one who would Dash the nations to pieces like pottery, Psalm 2. So, when John heard that Jesus was doing more low scale restoring than large scale smashing, it caused him to wonder whether he'd got things right. And for John, the stakes were very high. His commitment to holiness as an essential part of his mission had landed him in prison. So he was probably anxious to be reassured that he hadn't put all his eggs in the wrong basket. So verse 2, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, and notice that's what Matthew calls the deeds, John is a bit unsure, but when he heard about the deeds of Jesus, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or Should we expect someone else? Now, it'll be another three chapters, chapter 14, till we get to the point where we work out the story of John the Baptist at this point, why he is in prison. And it's, of course, because he was rightly zealous for God and his word. I assume some of you will know the story, but like any good Old Testament prophet, John was doing the right job of getting Israel's king to abide by the word of God. And in this case, Israel's king, the second Herod, had uh, not been doing that. He'd uh, hooked up with Herodias, his brother's wife, his king, so he can do what he wants. And John had been saying that he's not lawful for you to do. Of course, the powers that be don't like being told, stuff like that, so he gets put in prison. And of course, sadly, we learn in chapter 14 that Herodias is a real piece of work, says, I want his head on a platter, And she gets it. John might even suspect that his life could be hanging in the balance at this point. And I also think we're supposed to see John as spiritually tired at this point. And I'm going to say why that is in just a moment. But in any event, it's easy to see why he especially might be really hoping that Jesus is about to be installed as Israel's all-conquering king. He'd much rather have Jesus than Herod at that point and if he knows there's at least a possibility that his life is hanging in the balance, he's going to want that. He's going to be even more anxious, isn't he? So what response does Jesus give to his dearly beloved cousin who's spiritually tired that would give him and actually us some nice healthy assurance? Well, Jesus doesn't give a direct answer. He simply restates the word of God that John was already familiar with. Verse 4, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, with your uh, sort of Old Testament Israelite glasses on, Uh, you'll recognise that Jesus is sort of squashing together a whole lot of the Word of God and kind of summarising it from uh, the great prophet Isaiah, if you like to look these things up, particularly 35 and, and 61 of Isaiah. And they're all things pertaining to the role of Yahweh, God himself, somehow restoring his kingdom, and this enigmatic character, the suffering servant, restoring God's kingdom. Jesus assumes that John should know that the Messiah, the Christ, is also somehow the Lord, Yahweh, who will also somehow suffer for the benefit of his people. The reason Jesus hasn't been enthroned yet is because he needs to suffer and then establish a kingdom in which death won't even have the final word, which ought also to be reassuring for John the Baptist. Now, why did I say earlier that I think we're supposed to see John the Baptist as spiritually tired at this point? Well, it's because you can't help but think of the personal work of the prophet Elijah at this point. Might have been a while since we've had the famous Sunday school lesson, but let me rehash it for you now. In the... Kings, the line of kings, especially in Israel, but also in Judah, they were notoriously mostly bad, following in the evil steps of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And God's pattern was to send prophets to bring his word to bear on the lives of the kings in the hope that they will then set a godly culture for the people of Israel. The kings usually found false prophets and did away with the good ones. And so we focus in, in one point in the book of 1 Kings, on this king named Ahab and Ahab's a nasty piece of work he's worse than all the other ones he's like Jeroboam son of Nebat and something that Ahab does that's really bad is he marries someone does anyone want to yell out what's the name of the woman that Ahab marries anyone know Jezebel if you're old enough you might have even heard that as a derogatory name for a nasty woman she's a bit of a Jezebel right this is where it comes from and Jezebel is not an Israelite marrying outside the people of God, big, big no-no. Of course, she brings her pagan idolatry into the very kingdom of Israel, and it filters down. And Ahab is so passive, he won't do anything about it. She rules the roost, and she hates the prophets of Yahweh. And that's when Elijah gets the job, you're going to be a prophet of Yahweh. And he's like, oh, dang. And so he goes to Ahab, and he says, Ahab, God's going to shut up shop when it comes to the rain for three years. No rain, three years. And then he thinks Ahab won't like the sound of that, so he takes a run and he goes into exile for a while. And, of course, three years, there's no rain. After three years, and doing a cool thing with a widow and her son, Elijah comes back to Ahab. Ahab sees him and goes, you troubler of Israel, which probably sounds way worse in the original than what it does to us, right? And he goes, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You are bringing idolatry and, you know, killing the Lord's prophets. And Elijah goes, let's work this out once for all. You know what? You bring all the prophets of Baal, and I'll be the one prophet of Yahweh. There's actually 100 others, but Obadiah hid them in a cave, so we won't pretend they're not there. And we'll build two big altars, one for you guys, with your 400 or whatever it is, 450 prophets of Baal. And uh, we'll see if Baal answers by burning up the offering on the altar. And uh, if he does, good, Baal's God. But otherwise, I'll put my uh, offer on, on, on my altar to Yahweh, the true and living God, and if he burns it up, we'll know he's God. And of course, there's this hilarious scene where the prophets of Baal set up their altar with their cow on it and they yell out to Baal and they beat themselves, and Elijah starts taunting them, saying, Where's your, where's your Baal? Yell louder. Maybe you wake it. Maybe he's having a rest. Or maybe he's relieving himself literally you need to sort of get him off the loo in order to come and burn the thing of course he doesn't do it then Elijah goes I'll set up mine but you know what that's not good enough pour some water pour some more water pour some water there's no way this thing is going to be flammable Yahweh show them who's true God bang Yahweh lights it up and then Elijah goes let's be done with those prophets of Baal and they go and slaughter and Elijah's thinking man it's been such a terrible three years but now I'm thoroughly vindicated Finally, Israel will stay true to the true and living God Yahweh. No. What happens? Jezebel hears about it, of course. She goes, Man, Baal deal with me ever be it ever so severely unless I do to Elijah what he's done. In other words, and she probably wanted to torture him as well, right? So poor Elijah goes away downcasts. The Baal worship continues, and he gets to the point, point. you can read this near the end of 1 Kings, he goes, God, I'm tired. I don't want to go on anymore. I want to lie down and die. God goes, have some food, buddy. It's always a good idea, by the way, if you really get a bit hangry, you know. And he goes, all right, thank you, but I'm going to die. No, 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 have some more food. Do three times have food? you got a big journey? He goes, well, okay. I'll give God another chance. I'll go to the place where God originally spoke. Mount Horeb, Sinai, where he spoke to Moses. So Elijah treks off and he goes to Sinai. And the things that accompanied the voice of God when God spoke to Moses are there. The wind, the fire. and the. But God's not in the wind. God's not in the thunder. God's not in the fire. God's the still, small voice. In other words, the same unchanging word of god that elijah already knew is the thing that he needs to recall it's a great travesty that some of our more charismatic brothers and sisters speak of the still small voices this kind of pagan mystic thing where you just sort of meditate and hear some profound insight from god that does that, that's, that's the opposite of what it's actually about the still small voice is the fact that god doesn't need all the big miracles it's just his same word his same unchanging character that Elijah needs to recall he says Elijah mate I've, you're not the only one left I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal my plan still stands good you're tired I know but you've just got to come back to me and my character which you get through my word that's where John the Baptist is are you the one who is to come I'm in prison I'm tired Jesus goes here's my character here's my word from Isaiah you get the same thing Now, after sending John's disciples back, Jesus does the kind of thing he does for all his followers who are spiritually tired. He gives great affirmation and great vindication. Look with me at verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. The the translations we have are a little bit on the nice side. The fine clothes word can be translated effeminate or homosexual. And there are two ways of saying the same thing. Did you go to see someone who's just going to bend with the tide, i.e. like the kings and the rulers? Did you go to someone who's wearing their fancy clothes who's effeminate? No. That's like the kings in their palaces. The ones who are putting John in prison. No, no, you didn't get... You saw a man. You saw a guy that was dressed in camel's hair and it was hardcore. He was out in the desert preaching a baptism repentance. So verse 9, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Again, quoting from Isaiah, the prophet who would usher in God's entry into the world. That's this guy, says Jesus. John had the privilege of welcoming Yahweh in person, hence he's the greatest or most honoured of all the Old Testament prophets. That's why Jesus' following astounding claim uh, is is one of the most sort of assuring claims, assuring bits of the word uh, of God that he gives to his children. Verse 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, i.e. everyone, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet... Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If you are a follower of Jesus, even a spiritually tired follower of Jesus, God wants you to know that you are greater. You are more honoured, more privileged, even than the greatest Old Testament prophet who had the immense privilege of preparing people to meet God in person. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you could be wondering, if John is so highly honoured by God, why is he in prison and soon to die? Well, the fact that he's in a bad spot is in itself a huge vindication for the usual experience of prophets who stood firm on the word of the Lord was that the kingdom they prophesied is one that violent people tried to subdue through violence. They often found themselves at the wrong end of the sharp stick. Elijah was violently persecuted by Jezebel. And now John is about to be violently persecuted by Herodias, another evil king's evil wife. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John and if you are willing to accept it or literally willing to receive it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He is the one who holds fast and makes sure that God's plan and kingdom remains for those who are faithful. Whoever has ears to hear, in other words, whoever's faithful, let them hear. John the Baptist's original understanding that Jesus is the one who was to come was and remains correct. Jesus is the Lord for whom John prepared the way. And the fact that he is suffering and spiritually tired doesn't change that fact. As a matter of fact, it kind of vindicates him in proclaiming that truth. Now, I'm going to do one tiny little extra thing because I've got my timer here and I've only gone for 22 minutes. Which is, lo and behold, to open a Bible and tell you one of my favourite verses that no one would expect. Right? it's one Peter, chapter one and verse 10. It was actually interesting that John, I read the first bit of this this morning. I had in mind to, to, to read you this. It gives you a sense of what Jesus is saying here about anyone who is in the kingdom being more honoured and privileged than even the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. 1 Peter 1.10 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, that is my audience, to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Notice it was Jesus speaking through those persecuted prophets who said, I am the one who is to come and there will be suffering. Verse 12, here it is, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you, By those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look in these things. God has honoured us above angels by the mere fact that he has given us the news of God's kingdom fulfilled, that Jesus is the Christ, that he did suffer and die to pay for all the times that we have doubts and worries and fears and want to give up that he did rise up to glory and ascended to the throne of heaven where he currently rules and he holds off that final axe at the root of the tree kind of judgment purely so that more people can benefit from our spiritual tiredness as they hear the good news, repent and believe. I'm going to be greedy, and I'm going to give us two key points that I think we're right to glean from God's Word to us today, and uh, I've asked James to kindly write these up on the slide, so we'll stick them up behind me. Refocusing on the person and work of Jesus is a lifelong practice of those who enjoy the privilege of being in his eternal kingdom. That's why when Jesus responded to John, he said, let me tell you what you already know from the Word of God. Refocus on the person and work of Jesus. And we learn through that little incident that you and I have more reason than even the greatest Old Testament prophet to suffer and to expect vindication for serving Jesus. You don't get this in our current translations, but one of the fruits of the Spirit is actually long-suffering. It's a single old English word. Uh, The very fact that there are those, and it'll probably happen in the lives of the majority of Christians at some point, there are those who... On account of their faithfulness to Jesus, choose a hard road. The very fact that happens actually vindicates uh, them in terms of the, the final judgment. It says, The Spirit of God is working at you. This is a fruit that it's producing. Stick at it, even though you're spiritually tired. The day will come when you will look back and you'll go, Thank you so much, Jesus, that you worked in me, that when I was spiritually tired, you kept drawing me to yourself, and that's what kept me going. Notice that. By way of implication, thanks James, going to a really hype church isn't the thing that's going to do it for you because the hype will fade away. Becoming an overseas missionary in a third world country is certainly a brilliant thing to do, but that's not what Jesus tells John to do. Looking for amazing miracles and not the solution. John knew he said, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? I can see all the miracles, but I want to know about you. Refocusing on the person and work of Jesus through the unchanging word of God... That's the way, and that's, that's the still, small voice, if you like, given to all who are in the kingdom. Last application. Read this book. I've read, I'm not a super crazy bookworm, but I'm probably read a bit more than maybe what the average would be, and I've read a stack of Christian books. Gentle and Lowly by Dane Audlande. I think it's the best Christian book ever written. That's my claim. This is the best Christian book ever written. I'll tell you why. Because it clearly refocuses you onto the person and work of Jesus. Gentle and lowly, not surprisingly, is the term Jesus used for his, his very being, his self just a little bit after what he's saying to John the Baptist here we're going to see it like next week or the week after it's in in, in Matthew 11 right come to me all you who are weary and burdened notice it's not come to church it's not come to a, a missionary conference come to me says Jesus and I will give you rest for I am gentle and lowly humble in heart that's the kind of person I am you might expect God to be the kind of God who reaches out in the same way a boy reaches out to touch a slug to have something to do with a a lame sinner like me and a lame sinner like you. No, 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 he's, I'm gentle and lowly, I'm humble, come to me. He actually is very, very, very willing to embrace his followers and to give them all that they need to persevere. Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, best Christian book ever written. If you don't agree with me, well, you won't find out unless you read it anyway, so just read it and then don't agree with me. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his person and work that shows him to be, yes, the all-conquering King, but also the gentle and lowly servant who heals the sick, who raises the dead, who wants to cleanse us from all the things pertaining to our sinfulness. Heavenly Father, we praise you for him, and we pray that in our spiritual tiredness, either current or potential, and that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus, that through your word, that we may even be very familiar with, that through your word, we would come to reassess him, to refocus on him, uh, to learn from him more and more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.